Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. Hope it's been a great week for everyone. Too much news going on here, right? Well, yeah, lots of personal things going on, I suppose, but we're handling them. And by God's grace, we will get through everything and hopefully all will work out to his glory. Right. And pray for us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, another thing that's been going on is you've been assembling your first ebook to post on Amazon, right? Right. And you've been giving me a timetable in which to get it done. And I've been pretty much blowing it off because <laughs> of all the other things that we've had to get accomplished in this last couple of weeks. Yeah. But that should, it should be done very soon. I mean, it's almost completely ready. You're just editing. So C.S. Lewis's essay, Historicism, is the uh, topic for this week. Okay, and you can listen to that essay being read without commentary on our Simple Gifts podcast. And John, did you put the links? You put the links in the description, right? Righto. Okay, so this is going to be our last on our series of C.S. Lewis essays, right? It's the last in this first group. I don't know exactly okay, where we'll see. go from here with mm -hmm. the Christian Atheist. We'll probably return to C.S. Lewis essays at one point, yeah. but I don't know when. I, the next thing, I guess, on the agenda is to publish the David C. Smalley interview. Okay. All right. And All then right. that'll and then give us some time to figure out where to go next. Right. All right. So let's begin this one as we've been doing in the previous essays with the background information. So it's entitled Historicism. Right. Um, it was written by C.S. Lewis, October of 1950. 1950, yes. Mm -hmm. So... We know what was going on in the world at that time. Right. So the it's essentially the same historical period that we've been talking about all along. Yeah. The middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And World um, War II was over. Korean War? The Korean War was beginning. This was a period of great conflict within the leftist ideology mm -hmm. of both European and the American intellectual circles. Socialism was really prevalent at this time. Mm -hmm. And everyone was pretty much buying into all of the Marxist ideas. Right. And we had not yet found out how utterly deplorable the Soviet Union had become yeah. because of Marxism. Yeah. And the other experiments in Marxism were just beginning. Yeah. So what do you think C.S. Lewis was seeing in his academic world? Well, Lewis, of course, was seeing all the same things we talked about before. Mm -hmm. What we would call the prevalence of Hegelian thinking yeah. in the world. And Lewis himself seemed to be l slightly less aware of how pervasive that was becoming and how much it was traceable back to Hegel. But later in this essay... You but in this essay, I was actually fascinated to see how much Lewis did get mm -hmm. of Hegel. Right. Okay, so let me start this essay with this. He that would fly without wings must fly in his dreams. Right. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And Lewis uses this to introduce the essay historicism. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. He begins his essay by defining historicism. Could you read that definition? Lewis says, opening the essay, I give the name historicism to the belief that men can, by the use of their natural powers, discover an inner meaning in the historical process. That definition sounds Gnostic. Yeah, Gnosticism is actually a good thing to bring up because it's a claim to knowledge that most men don't have. Yeah. So 
Gnosticism, of course, was one of the major heresies being battled in the early church. Okay. It, so, it was a claim to know more than divine revelation had given us. So that kind of leads us to what historicism is, right? This clarify how Lewis differentiates historians and historicists. Okay, so moving on a little bit farther into the essay, what I mean by a historicist is a man who asks me to accept his account of the inner meaning of history on the grounds of his learning and genius. And then moving down just a little bit further into the essay, yeah, Lewis makes the point that historians, people who study history, quote, may certainly infer unknown events from known ones. They may even infer future events from past ones. Prediction may be a folly, but it is not historicism. A historian may interpret the past in the sense of reconstructing it imaginatively, making us feel, as far as may be, what it was like, and in that sense, what it meant to a man to be a 12th century villain or Roman equus. And here's the point. What makes all these activities proper to the historian is that in them, the conclusions, like the premises, are historical. The mark of the historicist, on the other hand, is that he tries to get from historical premises conclusions which are more than historical. Conclusions metaphysical or theological or, to coin a word, atheological. So then a historicist looks at history and thinks he can know it and explain it to all humanity. Right. An historicist actually claims that he understands the meaning of history. He can explain the deep, profound direction and meaning of all of the historical events of the world. So they're sort of giving you a meta meaning. Yeah. We might very well, as a historian, be able to find out by studying the historical events of Lincoln mm-hmm. what it meant that Lincoln was shot. Why yeah. was he shot? Who was he shot by? All of these things are things that the historian discovers. But why Lincoln was shot in the broad scheme of history itself, why did that have to take place? Mm-hmm. That would be something that the historicist might try, make a point right, to right. explain. The necessity. Right. And that's actually a really important term, Mm -hmm. the term necessity. Mm -hmm. Because as Lewis points out in the essay early on, there's a distinction between what the historian means by necessity and And what the historicist means. Could you explain the difference? Could you tell us the difference? I can I can try to. Okay. And this actually takes us back to, of course, Hegel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, how about if you give us an example, like, how about with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in World War One? Okay. So if we look at the events of the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand in World wife. War One, the historian would try to build a logical case as to the importance of this event in the actual occasion of World War One, mm-hmm. how it came about that this event took place logically necessitated that some other event took place and so forth. And they build a logical case that's all about history. Right. How would the historicist talk about it? The historicist would say that that event necessarily took place because he understands something about the very nature of reality itself Mm -hmm. that dictates that history 
had to develop in precisely the way in which it did, so that all of the things that happened, in fact, happened. So the historicist is looking at history as a way to find meaning for an entire historical or metaphysical structure, whereas the historian is a much more limited mm -hmm. viewpoint. Right. He's trying to tell us how historical facts tie together with other facts to reveal the nature of what happened historically. Right, right. Not the nature of history, broadly speaking, that is the entire but, history of humanity, of the world, everything. Yeah, but the part for the whole. Yeah, that's actually a good way of thinking about it. Thank you, my love. The part is what the historians look at, mm -hmm. and they try to make sense of the various parts and tie the parts together as well as they can. Right. But the historicist claims to have some sort of knowledge Special. about the whole. Right. And that's ridiculous, yeah. Lewis says. We're going to talk about that later, actually. Right. So at this point, Lewis makes an explicit reference to Hegel. Right, he, which he I found calls, fascinating. Yeah, he calls him a historicist. And so in what way does he do this, John? Well, he says, when Hegel saw in history the progressive self-manifestation of absolute spirit, mm -hmm. he was a historicist. Mm -hmm. And what an historicist is then, in terms of like Hegel, is someone who makes the claim that they can see the broad structure of how things are evolving, and as a result, they can tell you what's coming next and why everything had to be exactly what it was. And this is the best explanation of the difference between an historian's notion of necessity as that which ties the events of history together, and the historicist who believes that the unfolding events themselves must follow the pre-existing pattern, which they alone understand. So at this point, we can actually start to make a comparison mm -hmm. to what we did last week with the funeral of a great myth. Yeah. Because there we said Lewis declared the death of the myth way too prematurely. Yeah. Right? And that it's going on now, that right. th this particular myth that he's talking about, the myth of evolution, is one that is alive and well and with us today. Didn't you say last week it was sick on its deathbed? Right. That but it revived. The, right. <laughs> that maybe at the time Lewis was looking at it, mm -hmm. it was having some intellectual troubles in the academic community. Yeah. But it definitely revived. But it definitely revived and came back full force. <laughs> and this has died. Historicism, Historicism has died. Historicism, however, is probably more readily amenable to pronouncing a death sentence on mm -hmm. than was the myth of evolution. So it should be the funeral of historicism. The funeral of historicism would have been a better choice. Yeah. So although in Hegel, and if you listen to my series, you'll find that I talk and I'd have to remember explicitly exactly all the things that I've talked about. Yeah. But I don't think I made much reference to Hegel as an historicist. No. In our, no, I don't remember you. In our presentations on Hegel. No. It was a very important part of Hegelian philosophy. But remember when we talked about what happened with Hegelian philosophy? Mm -hmm. It began to fragment into mm -hmm. parts. Mm -hmm. Well, when the fragmentation happened, we started to evolve towards postmodernism. Yeah. And uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard is famous for saying that he defines postmodernism as incredulity towards metanarratives. And that's the idea that you can know everything yeah. from having examined the structure of history. 
Right. Hegel was, in many ways, the last of the great meta-narratives, although Marx is in good contention for that place. After them, they began to be suspicious of the meta-narratives, and things fell apart from a single structure into the collective centers Uh that we see today in like woke culture. So it's not that there is one central narrative. There is the narrative center that is race Marxism Mm -hmm. and feminist Marxism and fat Marxism. So all of these critical theories Uh have developed their own little intellectual center. Right. And they are competing with one another for the centrality. Because, as we said, no central narrative is now in place. Mm -hmm. Now we just have a collection of narratives that are battling with one another for dominance. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so back to the essay. This essay actually caused you to realize that Lewis understood Hegel at a deeper level than you had thought, right? Yeah, when I read this essay, I was actually surprised. Yeah, I think it was last week. Last week or the week before, you said that he didn't quite understand Hegel. As well know. as I do. Yeah, and but now you realize that, that, <laughs> he, he, you realized it's deeper than you thought. I think I understand now that Lewis had a better grasp of who Hegel was mm-hmm. and his vast influence. Yeah. But still, I think, missed some of the importance of Hegel in the historical development, yeah. which actually makes yeah. the point of historicism right. that, as Lewis says, You can't know all that much by examining history. For one thing, you can't predict what's going to happen. He pronounced the death of the great Great myth myth. in that last one, and he was Mm, wrong about that. And now he talks this week about historicism, and he makes us think that this is an important thing, and its importance has essentially evaporated. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Lewis goes on to make a central declaration of his essay. Do you want to read that, John? Right. So picking up with a a little farther down from what we read. Mm Mm-hmm. The contention of this article is that historicism is an illusion and that historicists are, at the very best, wasting their time. And I would like to just for a few seconds jump up above that section and read something that Lewis says here. He says, evolutionism, when it ceases to be simply a theorem in biology and becomes a principle for interpreting the total historical process, is a form of historicism. Mm -hmm. So this ties into what we talked about last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funeral of the Great Myth. That Lewis is recognizing that there is an Hegelian element in both of these things. Mm -hmm. And the death of the great myth, which he's pronouncing and hoping is really dead, (laughs) has become more and more important. And the element of historicism that he's analyzing here has become actually far less important in our modern world. In fact, if it hangs on anywhere, it hangs on in the religious circles and in Christian Mm -hmm. circles. And this essay, I think, serves best as a warning to Christians to be careful about thinking you understand the structure of God's plan and his actions in the world than you do. Okay, so what about Christianity, John? Isn't it like a form of historicism itself? Well, Lewis actually makes an argument that it's not. He says that most people who are secular scholars would tend to interpret Christianity as a form of historicism, but that they're wrong Mm -hmm. on that point. And Mm -hmm. it's probably worth spending a few moments talking about why Lewis thinks that's the case. Okay. 
But if any man thinks that because God was pleased to reveal certain calamities as judgments to certain chosen persons, he is therefore entitled to generalize and read all calamities in the same way. I submit that this is a non sequitur, that is, a conclusion that does not follow from the premises. Mm -hmm. Moving on just a few lines downward, Lewis says this. But secondly, we must insist that such an interpretation of history was not the characteristic of ancient Hebrew religion, not the thing which sets it apart and which makes it uniquely valuable. On the contrary, this is precisely what it shares with popular paganism. To attribute calamity to the offended gods, and therefore to seek out and punish the offender, is the most natural thing in the world, and therefore the worldwide method. And I can't help but think here mm -hmm. of the piling on by the Christian church yeah. when the AIDS epidemic broke out, that yeah. this was the judgment of God. Yeah. I think that's a dangerous thing. Yeah. And you and I have talked about another element of this, how Christians often tend to read the Bible and think that they have end times prophecy <laughs> all sewn up. Left behind. Yeah. <laughs> they got it all figured out and they know where it's going. And that is dangerous. Yeah. And I think Jesus specifically warned us against it. Right. The unraveling of God's purpose will be in his time and in his way. Mm -hmm. And we must simply wait and allow it to happen. Right. Indeed. And not think that we have some privileged access because we can read the Bible and interpret it in our way. Because yep. Those are the most difficult portions of Scripture to understand, for sure. Okay, so moving forward, the distinctive thing, the precious peculiarity of Scripture is the series of divine rebuffs, mm -hmm. which this naive and spontaneous type of historicism there receives. And then he says this a little lower, if this sort of historicism survives, it survives in spite of Christianity. Right. We must guard against the emotional overtones of a phrase like the judgment of history. And this we get today, oftentimes, yeah. in secular culture, yeah. right? the judgment of history. It might lure us into, he says, the vulgarest of all vulgar errors, that of idolizing as the goddess history what manlier ages belabored as the strumpet fortune. That would sink us below the Christian or even the best pagan level. The very Vikings and Stoics knew better. And of course, what we want to point to here is the real danger of historicism. That is the idolization of history, worshiping history as the unfolding spirit of someone like Hegel. Yeah. yeah. And there's a quote you really like, one that shows that Lewis really understood Hegel. Right. So moving on a few more lines mm -hmm. into the essay. In the modern world, quite plainly, historicism has a pantheistic ancestor in Hegel and a materialistic progeny in the Marxists. Mm -hmm. It has proved so far a stronger weapon in our enemies' hands than in ours. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, a pantheist Hegel started it. Right. Marx adopted and promulgated it. Correct. And now it's pervasive in our world through the right? culture. Was it pervasive back then in Lewis's time? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, actually. Yeah. Do you think he would have seen it <sighs> like you see it today? 
the Marxists of Hegel's time, the socialists were certainly historicists. Yeah. Lewis argues against it, not in the sense that history doesn't have a meaning, but that human beings can grasp that meaning is what he argues against. Yeah. And certainly, as I said, the Hegelians and the Marxists were holding on to a form of historicism, mm -hmm. which has, since that time, largely passed away. Sweet. And I have to be careful here, because it hasn't really died. Mm -hmm. It still haunts us in the same form that we talked about in the myth of the, evolution. This, yeah, yeah. That in some sense, everything is getting better, mm -hmm. right? And so that all we have to do to achieve the imminent utopia is to simply get rid of those things that are holding us back from achieving it. Right. Because history naturally evolves towards the better. So in that sense, historicism is tied to the great myth of evolution. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, since the middle of the 20th century, historicism has deeply declined. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten this fragmented sense in which collective centers value their individual things above all else and fight amongst one another for dominance. Okay, so in the essay, Lewis says that to be a historicist, you would have to basically have what you've called in the past the seed of God. Right. And that was seat. something that was very Hegelian. Right. You and talked about that. We belabored that yep. point in our Hegelian yeah. <laughs> series quite a bit. And Hegel thought as though he could understand all of history from beginning to end right. and where it was going. Right. Something that's either God or Gnostic. Right. So Hegel claimed to be able to understand the whole structure of history and that it was rationality unfolding itself. Mm -hmm. And that rationality he labeled spirit. Yeah. So Lewis says this, and mm -hmm. it's, it's worth spending a few seconds reading this. Okay. What appears on Christian premises to be true in the historicist's position is this. Since all things happen either by the divine will or at least by the divine permission, it follows that the total content of time must in its own nature be a revelation of God's wisdom, justice, and mercy. Mm -hmm. And we talk about mere Christianity, the idea of the basic yeah. understanding of the nature of Christianity. This is one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity. Mm -hmm. God is in control of everything and is in the process of working out his own will and divine plan through history. History is, in that sense, a perpetual evangel. That is the idea of the good news, yeah. right? The, the plan of God to redeem mankind. A story written by the finger of God. And then he says this, and this is the whole point of what we're going through this for. If by one miracle... The total content of time were spread out before me, and if by another I were able to hold all that infinity of events in my mind, and if by a third miracle God were pleased to comment on it so that I could understand it, then, to be sure, I could do what the historicist says he is doing. And that's the point that I made when I said Hegel is sitting mm -hmm. in the seat of yeah. God. Yeah. He is claiming to have that sort of knowledge, the sort of knowledge that <laughs> I've been claiming throughout the Christian atheist, yeah. starting with the philosophy of Plato and Socrates, no human being is capable of having. Socrates made the point, 
We are fundamentally limited and ignorant creatures, and we cannot know the types of things that the historicist is making the claim unless the historicist is sitting in the seat of God. Yep. Yeah. And they're not, because no human being can. Yeah. So at this point, you pretty much skip forward through the essay, huh? Right. With one addition from where we're sitting right now. I do not dispute, Lewis says, that history is a story written by the finger of God. But have we the text? And that becomes the central point on which all of this turns, because we cannot have the text for exactly the reason that we just talked about. We cannot sit in the seat of God. Now, what we can have when we get to the very end of the essay is the direct text written to us in our lives, moment by moment, second by second, each and every day unfolds before us. And that is part of the story that God is writing. And I think as Lewis makes the point in the Chronicles of Narnia, each one of us has a peculiar story, a peculiar approach that God brings to us that is meant for us Mm -hmm. and not for anyone else. And so each story is unique, but that only gives us access to our story. And as Aslan said to Aravis, and as Aslan said to Shasta in The Horse and His Boy, every person is told only their own story. And it is the story that is unique to us, the story that God gives to us. And it is our way to find him, to love him, to follow him, and to be what he made us to be. Mm-hmm. Jesus says that to Peter, too. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Could you explain that a little more? Yeah, Jesus says to Peter, when Peter says, what about this guy over here? Right. With John. Yeah. What's going to happen to him? He goes, don't worry about that. Right. Just do what you're told to do. If I have John live till I come back. Yeah, what is that to you? Right. Just you what keep is that? feeding my sheep. And that that actually sends shivers up my spine. (laughs) It really does. Yeah, because my story was incredibly unique. (laughs) I don't think many Christians could could claim my story. Not that it's a good story. (laughs) I screwed it up royally. But to see and feel God's grace as he brought me through it to where I stand now, I am sure that when eternity comes, I will be the least of Christians. I'll be there. You know, what grace is that? That is the most wonderful thing in the world because I walked away. I turned my back. I denied him as Peter did. And worse, I denied him as Judas did. And he welcomes me home. That is amazing. You haven't cried for a little while. Yeah, it's about time for me to (laughs) shed some tears on the Christian atheist. Oh, this is No compromise. (laughs) Okay, so let's skip forward in the essay. Okay. Where you make the case that historicism causes us to routinely take the part for the whole, right? Why do you say that? Okay, so to bring this point home, let me read just a little bit again from the essay. Okay. Why should Genghis Khan, Lewis asks, be more important than the patience or despair of some one among his victims. Might not those whom we regard as significant figures, that is in history, Mm -hmm. great scholars, soldiers, and statesmen. And for me, I think, you know, Billy Graham, 
the people that we look back on and think of as saints, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. We think of these as the great Christians of the world. Why? We are acting as historicists in thinking that, because it may very well be, because God knows the heart, that the greatest among us have been, as Jesus suggested, the least among us. And I can't help but think here of a man in my own experience who died in the last two or three years by the name of Paul Ginder, who was one of the most humble and simple and kind and gentle, but loving disciple of Christ, who lived his life shining that light in a very, very basic way, why might not he be way ahead of someone else whom we look at and think, oh, now there's a great Christian. He was certainly a better man than me. And I think very well that might be the case. And this is the problem of historicism of taking the part for the whole. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a theme that we've been repeating over and over again, that we are limited in our knowledge. Right. And that God sees the whole structure mm-hmm. and properly values the parts of that structure, puts yeah. them in the proper hierarchical structure. Remember in Paradise Lost, the angel Raphael talking to Adam? Ah, uh, yes, exactly right. So Milton, when he's having Adam have a discussion with the angel Raphael, Raphael tells him that there are some things that are beyond him and that he must be content to know what he can know, Yeah. but that the curiosity is a good thing, Mm -hmm. but that the pretension to know what you don't know, the seeking to know what you can't know can be very problematic. And eventually, of course, because we're talking about paradise lost, it is that, that seeking for the forbidden knowledge that really brings about the fall of mankind. Mm -hmm. The loss of paradise. Right, the loss of paradise. Okay, so to sort of sum up that point, you have a passage from 1 Corinthians that makes the the Socratic point for us better than we could do it ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, 1 Corinthians 8.2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Yep, and that's perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it makes the Socratic point for us better than, <laughs> of course, because it's the Word of God, exactly. better than uh, we could make it ourselves. Yeah. Lewis goes on and says this, on such a small and chance selection from the total past as we have, so no matter how complete our understanding of history may be, it is just the smallest slice of the smallest slice of the smallest slice of what actually occurred. Mm -hmm. He says, it seems to me a waste of time to play the historicist. The philosophy of history, which is actually a title that Hegel wrote, is a discipline, Lewis says, for which we mortal men lack the necessary data. Nor is the attempt always a mere waste of time. It may be positively mischievous. It encourages a Mussolini to say that history took him by the throat, when what really took him by the throat was desire. Drivel about superior races, or imminent dialectic, may be used to strengthen the hand and ease the conscience of cruelty and greed. And what quack or traitor will not now woo adherence or intimidate resistance with the assurance 
that his scheme is inevitable, bound to come, and in the direction which the world is already taking. And I can't mm-hmm. help but see here the progression of events mm-hmm. in the homosexual agenda that has moved us from domestic partnerships to homosexual marriage to drag queen story hour to no gender at all is excessive to the idea that we can choose our own gender and that all forms of sexuality are good, even those with children, and that we are supposed to allow, what, infants now to choose their gender, that we are violating children by pointing out the scientific fact that they are born a male or a female. So the claim still here stands that some of this historicist reasoning remains with us and is part of the reasoning that is undermining the Western structure that has built the most productive and beneficial society that the world has ever known. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, John, let's close this episode. We're getting pretty long now. Let's close the episode with, by reading something that Lewis says at the end of the essay, and it's something that you really, really, really like, right? And you say it's something very important for us to remember. In the last few paragraphs of this essay, Lewis says this, The scientist studies those elements in reality which repeat themselves. The historian studies the unique. Both have a defective manuscript, but its defects are by no means equally damaging to both. One specimen of gravitation or one specimen of handwriting, for all we can see to the contrary, is as good as another. But one historical event, or one line of a poem, is different from another, and different in its actual context from what it would be in any other context. And out of all these differences, the unique character of the whole is built up. That is why, in my opinion, the scientist is in a stronger position than the historian who becomes an historicist. It may not be very wise to conclude from what we know of the physical universe that God is a mathematician. It seems to me, however, much wiser than to conclude anything about his judgments from mere history. We ought to be, as a warning, I think, from this essay, very careful about concluding what the meaning of anything is around us, because we're not wise enough to make that claim. And then I think we can end with this point. On certain great events, those embodied in the creeds, we have what I believe to be divine comment, which makes plain so much of their significance as we need and can bear to know. So this, again, is a Socratic point. On other events, most of which are in any case unknown to us, we have no such comment. So it's a warning to Christians. Be careful about claiming too much. And it is also important to remember that we all have a certain limited but direct access to history. We are allowed, indeed compelled, to read it sentence by sentence, and every sentence is labeled now. I am not, of course, referring to what is commonly called contemporary history, the content of the newspapers. That is possibly the most phantasmal of all histories. 
a story written not by the hand of God, but by foreign offices, demagogues, and reporters. I mean the real, or primary history, which meets each of us moment by moment in his experience. It is very limited, but it is the pure, unedited, unexpurgated text, straight from the author's hand. We believe that those who seek will find comment sufficient whereby to understand it in such degree as they need. And what this means is that God works in the life of each individual human being to bring them to Him as only He can do, because He understands not just the whole of history, but the heart of each individual human being. And He is speaking to each and every one of us. We need to open our hearts to Him and invite in the mind of Christ the life of Christ, to redeem us from our own failures, our own limitations. And then we'll end with this phrase, and that therefore God is every moment revealed in history, that is, in what MacDonald called the holy present, where, except in the present, can the eternal be met. That's great, John. That ends this week's discussion. Don't forget, everyone, to check out the links in the description for the different things that John mentioned. Okay, so if you're listening to us through our YouTube channel, we'd love for you to subscribe. I try to keep notifications to a minimum. We have all our our Simple Gifts stuff on there, too. So it's not just the Christian atheist and listening to us. It's it's also John reading the classics. Which are absolutely Mm -hmm. vital. I often get the question from Christians and others, what should I read? Well, I think the best thing to read is everything in the Western tradition, because all of it, including those things that challenge the Christian position, Mm -hmm. are worth reading, because all of them point us to God, all of them cause us to use our intellects, our rationality, which God has given it to us, and to think about these things more clearly. Mm -hmm. And I believe that when you do that, you are on the way that leads to truth. And all of those ways lead to Jesus. Right. So if you don't have time to read it yourself, you can listen to John reading it. I've read it for you. Right. Without commentary, too. (laughs) Okay, so thank you for joining us. Hope you're having a great week. And if you have any questions, anything you'd like to discuss, any episode ideas, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And John always answers everybody. He spends a lot of time answering everybody. As always, if you want to buy us a cup of coffee, you can use the link in the description for that as well. So, well, we'll see you next week. And thanks again for listening. And I love you, John. And I love you, my dear. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.